1: Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mix Club page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. Welcoming you back to the Happiness Pause on Soho Radio with me, Emma Bartholomew. My guest for this edition of The Happiness Pause is somewhat different for us. We are so, so lucky to have him with us today. He is the UK military's chief survival instructor. What a title. He's also a broadcaster, writer, public speaker and training consultant. His work, as you can imagine, takes him to some of the most remote and extreme environments on the planet, from jungles to glaciers. A former RAF helicopter pilot, he is the British military's chief SEER instructor, which stands for, the civilians amongst us will not know this, Survival, Evasion, Resistance and Extraction, and an elected fellow of the Royal Geographical Society. He's been a resident survival expert for TV channel Discovery, and his book, How to Survive, which includes advice on getting through the COVID crisis, importantly, was published at the end of last month. I have that book in front of me and it is my great pleasure to welcome to the Happiness Pools, John Hudson. Welcome.
0: Thanks very much indeed, Emma. Thanks very much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you.
1: Oh, great. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. And I hope I included everything. You've you've done so much in your career and there was so much in the book. I hope I did you justice in your intro.
0: Thank you. And thanks for missing out the bad bits.
1: Yeah, I saw those and I thought, no, you don't want them public.
0: (laughs) No, not today. (laughs) Cheers.
1: Not today. Not today. This is all about happiness. So I'm going to give you an easy time, I promise. (laughs) Um, So look, on that subject, this is something I start by asking all of my guests. Hmm. How happy are you today? Have I got my work cut out or are you in a good place?
0: I'm in a good place. I mean, it's it's no different working from home at the moment than it has been for the last few weeks. But today's been a decent day, so I've managed to get my dosage of caffeine up, which always helps being oh, a little yeah. bit higher, doesn't it? You know, that's always a good way to do it. So tackle it with a bit of that, and um, yeah, it's, I'm I'm not too bad, thanks. I feel like I've shot down the biggest things that I needed to get done in the morning, so that we can have our chat now. Yeah.
1: Oh, good, good for you. Well done. Nice. Well, it's hardly surprising. I went. When, when we start talking about your book and the things like to-do lists and organisational skills being imperative to survival, it's not mm. surprising that you're so organised. Oh, it's um, a fault for
0: me, I'll be honest. This on a, on a normal sort of weekday like this, I tend to, like, not always be able to follow my own advice as strictly as I would ah. like, but today's
1: been good, yeah. Well well done you're winning so far. Now listen I've um I've asked you to bring five tracks that uplift yeah. you to a happy place which might mm. sound trite but I think really? music plays such an important part in that. Agreed. Um so we're going to listen to our your first choice before we really get into conversation. Mm. This is a wonderful song. You've chosen um The Man Who Sold The World by David Bowie. What why is this one uplifting to you? I, I
0: love music. I'm not a museo. I, I couldn't certainly hold an instrument or put a note together in any way, but I love music, and I love this track. And I think it's it's great to be able to keep discovering new things about music. And I've loved Bowie's music for years and years and years, but I came to this particular his version, his original version of this track, particularly late. So I think that it just proves there's always space for, expo- uh, for exploration and discovery in any realm, including music.
1: Nice answer. Okay. Well, (laughs) it speaks for itself because it's a true classic by a legend. This is the man who sold the world. First excellent choice of music from my guest on today's Happiness Pause, Mr. John Hudson. Uh, thank you for bringing us some brilliant music. That's just the start. I'm pretty excited to hear the rest of your playlist.
0: Cheers, Emma. Yeah, I love that track. The the, the bit we chat about just before it came in is um, when he, when we lost David Bowie a couple of years ago, it was a bit of a shock for everyone. And I would loved his back catalogue since I was a teenager, and I know loads of really good bands that I enjoy listening to cite him as an influence. And so it was only after he died that I I knew. He was the original singer. My my experience, at least, the original singer of that song. Because I first came across that track. I don't know if you remember the acoustic version that Kurt Cobain did years ago on MTV. Oh yes, nice. Yeah, yeah, I,
1: yeah, yeah. I
0: thought that was brilliant. And so to f- uncover a little golden nugget of of Bowie that I hadn't been aware of for all these years was I that that in itself made me happy. And I think I listened to it on repeat, driving to work for about a month. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I do that sometimes with his songs, especially "Let's Dance." That's a big. I'm a big fan of that. Oh, well, yeah. I'm, so many of his songs, to be honest. But yeah. um, now you you briefly touched on this before. We heard him uh, with "The Man Who Sold the World," saying that you love music, uh, yeah. which is music to my ears as a massive <laughs> music fan. Um, is do you think music is an important part in your general sense of kind of well being and happiness? Is it something you turn to?
0: Yeah. On, it's obviously the nature of wild chat about its is happiness but it can invoke so many different emotions too and and it's yeah. it's definitely a powerful um and emotive trigger for memories for me if i and you must hear this fairly often i guess but if i hear a specific record it doesn't necessarily transport me to a specific point In time, but it certainly takes me to a a kind of a a period in my um, sort of growth and development, or or just you know adult life, even that it really does cite that in my brain. So I'm I'm fascinated by the connection between all sorts of stimuli and and how we do what we do. And for me, music's a really good tonic for that because as well as it being a trigger for those memories, it's also a way to access them. So if I specifically want to. remember um, a period in time because I'm maybe writing about it or doing some work related to it, you can almost put together like a mental playlist, can't you? And then access the emotions that support that creative endeavor. So I think it's a, a powerful tool in terms of it can trigger memories or you can use it um, to, to enable that too.
1: Oh, yeah. Totally with you on that one. The, the age old adage of the universal transformative power of music. I'm always banging yeah. on about it. I'm sure people are bored about that by yeah. now, but... It's so true, definitely with you. Um, Now, before we get into more detail on your own sense of happiness, I definitely, definitely want to talk plenty about the book How to Survive. Right. Such a poignant title and so intriguing when you see that title uh, on the cover of a book. What I liked about it myself was that as gripping as it is in your telling of awe-inspiring and mind-boggling true tales of survival, which you pepper throughout the book. Hmm. Um, And they kept me turning the page. It's also brilliantly like a reference guide to kind of preparing for life and surviving all sorts of personal tests as well as far more extreme, and I would imagine much rarer ones. Um, And they all are so relative to any human experience. I, I was once lucky enough to hear... Um, the Andes plane crash survivor, Nando Parado, who was yeah. the one of the rugby team. Mm. Um, I heard him speak at the Hay Festival and he said something that has always stuck with me, which was, we all have our own personal Andes. Um, mm. And I just wondered if that resonates with you.
0: Wow, that's a powerful um, quote, isn't it? Yeah, yeah um, nice I, one. It is. And, and thanks very much for the, the, uh, the description of the, the book because that's exactly what I'd hoped... Um, that it, it would be when I started it. And um, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's important to, to know as well that there are um, shelves and shelves and shelves and shelves of books out there about um, how, how, I don't know, the cliches probably how to light a fire in the rain or, or that kind of thing. Um, and I I mean, I've probably read most of them and my work as a, a military instructor meant I had to draft a, a kind of a, a manual about that for work. But the bit that I think is missing and, and perhaps is what Nando is describing in the Andes is the kind of once you've survived the um, horrific, potentially horrific, life-altering flash crash, bang, wallet, whatever it may be, if it's a an airplane sliding down an Andean glacier to a, a sort of a silent halt or if it's something really bad that happens in your personal life to, to you or a loved one, once you've stepped away from that smoke and dust, how do you keep going? And that's the bit that has never really been quantified to, to my satisfaction in a lot of the survival literature. And it's something that I've I've looked at and studied for years and years and years. And certainly, there have been kind of life jolts in, in my experience, just as there have been in others. And it's not necessarily the wilderness that brings that, uh, as in the, the Andean case. But the bit that is I'm absolutely fascinated by is how do we keep going? And what mental processes can we employ and what do some people know to go back to your other point about the examples in the book what do some other people do that's successful and it's not and it isn't it isn't about this um, alpha male chest beating climbing up mountains mentality it really isn't it's a lot more subtle than that and it's something importantly I think and as as Nando touched upon that we all have these moments that are an equivalent to crashing in the Andes something that's altering our life that we don't necessarily expect but has huge impact on us and importantly i know from the years and years i've spent studying this field that the things that successful people have employed in the wilderness can the mental hacks they use can be employed by us all to overcome obstacles in our everyday and that's the the kind of core of what the message is about and the the, the book is really just a the how to survive bit—it's a how to cope with unexpected trauma, really, mental sort of anguish, Um, I suppose. And yeah, in terms of personal Andean-type events, it's not—I've never accidentally been flung into the wilderness. I've done it plenty of times for my job. Uh, that's always mm. been voluntary. But I have had, as we all have, had um, like career-ending, life-altering things that weren't anything of, of my own doing. It just. Uh, a medical one in my case meant I couldn't fly helicopters anymore. And that's, you know, losing your job is the sort of worst case scenario for a lot of us. But there are things we can all do to turn a, a, a negative like that into an opportunity, I think. I, I, I do believe that, Emma.
1: Yeah, and I think that really comes across strongly because al- although we find ourselves uh, in within the pages of the book, you know, at one point we are escaping a jungle after a plane crash and then mm. ejecting out of a stealth fighter over Belgrade in the middle of the war... Um, there's so much everyday advice uh, that we can all benefit from and something uh, in terms of our connection with our between our brain and our mental state and our maybe state of not not necessarily as extreme as happiness but well-being that I would love to ask you about Mm. I was I was really interested to read your encouragement that we should mentally run through emergency scenarios in order to be prepared for them which makes complete sense and Mm to avoid um, the, the, the panic and anxiety that we might get when that moment is unexpectedly thrown upon us. Mm. Um, and obviously panic and anxiety are two things that can be so inhibiting or prohibitive to our sense of happiness and well being. But mm. I did wonder, do you think running through the worst case scenarios could actually provoke anxiety or do you think it's just a process?
0: That's a great question, and it's the first time I've um, been asked it from that perspective. Really, so um, the 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 way I would explain my personal take on this is that whilst that and psychologists and I, I've worked with quite a lot of them would agree that avoidance and just ignoring potential harm is you know it is a coping mechanism that will prevent people from having um ruminative thoughts but it's only a coping mechanism that will work if the bad thing doesn't happen it's not very adaptive if it if it does occur so in the yeah. uh, examples that you mentioned like specifically looking at um unexpected things that can dent your happiness so the, the guy who was shot down from a stealth fighter dale's Zelko. I, w- I was lucky enough to correspond with him directly in my research and what dale said was Nobody expected a stealth fighter to get shot down in 1999. Everyone everyone thought they were invisible. But he knew that there was a really, really small chance that it could happen. And so if he'd done nothing, then it would be a nagging worry at the back of his mind. And that would impact his – happiness is the wrong word – but his sort of um, sense of security on the job. So what Dale did was prepare as best he could in case. And he knew that it was a a really vanishingly small likelihood. But he still – the night he flew – um, he wore three pairs of socks in case he had to walk home. and he, he Yeah, wore, yeah. Yeah, and, and he's put um, food bars in his pockets and extra sachets of water in his pockets because he understands that because of his physiology, he needs to be hydrated to think clearly and he has to have some food to boost his energy. So by having those things on him and by having thought about what he might do should the worst happen, even though it was really unlikely, when it actually did happen, He had the mental capacity to cope with it really well. And uh, what I would say is that I I would never advocate worrying about things that could happen to the nth degree. My stance on all of this, which is kind of based on uh, my experience and the experience of others, some of whom I chat about in How to Survive, is that by thinking about what could happen and then coming up, even if it's just with a mental shortlist or, or just one perhaps option of what you might do, that will release a little bit of the burden of anxiety, which can't help but increase your happiness. And it certainly works for me. If I got something to do, which, um, I don't know, fate or technology could throw a spanner in the works of and stand by for my computer to catch fire Now I've said that, but if, if, that is like, if that's like kind of possible, I will have some form of a backup. And it's not as literal as having an ejection seat and a parachute and wearing extra socks. It's just having a little plan in the back of your head for what you'll do. And for me, that puts the kind of uh, the gremlins at bay a little, keeps them at arms re- at arm's reach. So I know that if this happens, then I will do that. And that not necessarily makes me happy, but it certainly increases my kind of um, tranquility if you like it, it stops the worry so yeah it, and I mean this isn't necessarily uh, anything blinding obvious or, or, or new to a lot of people but it's certainly the first stage in the preparedness the planning part and the adaptive part to any bad event
1: yeah and it make that absolutely makes total sense um, and is that preparation um, and recognizing our vulnerabilities that is also really interesting to me running through the steps we need to take to succeed. And you, you, you talk about how as, as we do that, as we go through that process, we build up a muscle memory mm. that will then enable us to go through that survival process when the time comes or if the time comes, whether that's an extreme situation or giving a pre- presentation at work or yeah. relaying difficult news. Yeah. Or maybe like, you know, we, we often do this where we build up a negative scenario in our heads and then actually in the moment, it's far easier um, than we thought it was going to be. Yeah. Um, but in terms of muscle memory, do you think we can condition our mental muscle memory to be happier or more content? Or do you think that is just an ongoing process that we is so subconscious we don't even think about it?
0: I think because we can do the other things that you mentioned, mm. because our brains are inherently lazy. You know, they use a lot of our energy and they've evolved over thousands and thousands, dare say millions, at least 300,000 for our species years to take the correct shortcut for a kind of um, walking pace life on a sunny savanna. Now, Everything that's happening to 21st folk at the moment tends to be a little bit faster than walking pace when you look at the speed and rapidity of like digital uh, communications especially. So our uh, instinctive reactions to things tend to be uh, either inappropriate because they're tuned to a different scenario or perhaps uh, a little bit too slow to be able to um, do the right thing for the pace of the event. So... To answer the question about whether we can train our brains to be more happy, we can certainly train our responses. I know for a fact that mental responses and physical ones, so the muscle memory and the, almost like your brain, um, your brain's kind of muscle memory in itself. If you take your brain to the gym, which is easy to do because you don't have to go anywhere, you just sit there and think about it, then you can come up with the appropriate response that will release a little bit of that burden of anxiety, therefore pushing you towards the happy side of the the sort of um, little scale that it's on. Um, And then when we we look at actual things that we can do to make our brains feel happier, one of the things I love, and with every one of these kinds of theories, there'll be um, somewhere somebody from a corner of the internet shouting that it doesn't work for them, which is fine, you know, we're all individual. But for me, knowing that some of our brain circuitry is hackable in that um, so when we smile our brain knows that we're happy and and that kind of loop is two-way so you you feel happy and you smile but equally if you if you make yourself smile it makes your brain think you're happy and it needn't be a kind of um a forced grin that you're you're really stretching it's just pushing your face into the right position so one of the things i do if i'm doing something that isn't necessarily inherently pleasant like I don't know, tackling my computer inbox, I will put a pencil crossways between my my lips and my mouth so that my mouth muscles go to the form they would take if they were smiling. And that does make my brain think I'm happy. And that's a, an old, old psychology experiment that was done years ago that proved that that can be effective on people. So I, I employ that hack because there are things that we can do physically and mentally to make us feel happier. And that's one of the ones that I sometimes um, depend on if I get to the, the sort of the darkest recesses of my computer inbox and the the tasks that are lying there waiting for me.
1: Wow, that is such a great tip. I'm going to be biting down on some pencils imminently, I'm sure, when I, when, I get, when I get back to work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, thank you, that is such a great tip. Um, but one thing that we both agree on in terms Mm. of something that can make us happy is music so let's take a break for another track uh this is one of mine uh to fit in nicely with your playlist i hope this is uh figure it out by royal blood was the brilliant royal blood who we haven't heard from for a while i really really want some new music from them with figure it out and i love the what people might think is a guitar solo in that but it's actually an augmented bass and the way that he plays that oh my god it is just genius you are listening to the happiness pause on soho radio and today i'm speaking to survival expert and author, author of how to survive john hudson John, one of the things that you talk about in the book that really resonates with me as a super anal organized freak <laughs> is how effective uh, keeping checklists can be. It was like joy <laughs> when I was reading that um, in terms of survival preparation. But also uh, so that would be, I guess, the kind of survival flashcards that pilots uh, issued, which was really yeah. interesting for me as a total civilian to read about that. But um, <laughs> more in everyday life, keeping and checking off to-do lists, it, they can. I find that it helps me to keep calm and feel organized. And also, when you get through that to-do list, it, it does really bring a very satisfying sense of achievement. Is, is that sent kind of sense of achievement important to you in your own sense of kind of, um, let's not go to the extreme of happiness, but well-being and, and sense of being okay?
0: Yeah. And what you've said makes complete sense to me as well, because it's a sense of, well, it's almost a sense of progress, isn't it? it? It's like knowing that you're you're making headway rather than just being on an endless treadmill. And one of the key things for happiness to me is that sense of control almost. not I'm not a control freak by any yeah. means. Knowing that I've got a, at least a handle on events um, that, that I'm involved in, rather than being a complete passenger. And having no influence on what's happening around me it's it's interesting that the there's two parts of the checklist thing that um i think is i think is helpful the first is that what we've just said you know by ticking the little boxes as you go down your notebook or wherever you keep them on your phone or whatever you get that sense of, of progress and then the the next part is that your brain likes it too because if you offload those things into a notebook you're not using up all your storage space in your head. So you can have those other more creative moments. And then the other brain aspect to it is it, there's been plenty of science done by far brighter folk than I to prove that when you cross the little tech, uh, tick boxes in your to-do list or whatever it is, you do actually get a little rush of dopamine in your head. And that's one of the key um, you know providers of happiness in a way so there's a there's um, a a strong collection between unloading the baggage from your head by doing it so freeing you up to be more creative and more adaptive and therefore more kind of successful in your 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 challenges whatever they may be and equally by progressing slowly through them rather than trying to rush headlong in a, a disorganized way you're actually getting nice small little spikes of the happy chemical as you do it so yeah there's a lot more to it than that, I'm sure. But for me, that if I were to boil down the benefits of checklists, I would say it was those two things.
1: Do you know what? I, as someone who has always felt like a lifelong loser for my love of lists, you've just made me feel so much better. There's science behind it. I am justified in being a loser. Um, but... You also just mentioned there about uh, freeing up some kind of uh, headspace, mental capacity by mm. almost uh, alleviating that list in our brain by just getting it out, whether it's on the phone, on your on your yeah. tablet, in your, in your in your notebook, wherever it might be. Yeah. Um, and I, I also really resonated with the uh, part where you talk about going for a stroll or getting some fresh air because if you have a mental block you can release it and some ideas might be freed up by just having a change of scenery which i totally totally agree with um and i wondered if there's a place where you would specifically walk not necessarily an exact location we're not trying to stalk you but um (laughs) like like a kind of environment that you would find quite freeing and liberating for your ideas to get them flowing
0: I think that's a, a fascinating way to look at it, and um, there's a there's a part of my job which is to do with making sure that I'm not being stalked. So I'd be upset if you caught up with me, but that's more <laughs> embarrassment than anything else. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but the the bit I like about this part of uh, of the the sort of psychological science of it all is that it's been proven not that long ago originally in kind of quantitative data, but certainly echoed a lot recently in my part of the world, down in where I live at the moment, down in the southwest of the UK. Um, it was actually one of the universities down here in Exeter that came up with some of the most interesting statistics about all this. So the bit I like is that the knowledge that science backs up that just by going into a, an outdoorsy space, a green outdoorsy space, has a very very positive effect on your happiness fact it's equivalent to something like 50,000 extra pounds in your bank you know it's a, it's a a real nice kick in the right direction and the next best bit, bit the next best bit i think is the bit that came out of Exeter uni recently which said that the dosage in terms of the green spaces as, as a medicine if you were to compare them to that is that you only actually need to do a couple of hours per week to get that benefit which we can all fit in, I reckon, with like maybe a half hour here or half hour there. So in answer to to the where part of the question, for me, I know from that that it doesn't really matter which area I go to, provided it's got elements of kind of the natural environment in it, you know, those sort of um, forest bathing, as the Japanese would call it, or a chlorophyll sort of wash. But if you go to a green space, it will be better for you. So I I vary it normally if we were um, doing this under kind of less lockdown um, situations I would vary it a little bit with work we'd be in woodland um, or we'd be maybe down at the coast but then equally they're the sort of places that I would seek out in my leisure time so d- down to the beach because it's Cornwall why wouldn't you um, and then mm-hmm. we're really lucky where we live we're, we're quite near some high ground in the centre of Cornwall and it doesn't take a very long walk from where I live to be able to see both the north and the south coast which is really nice because that gives you that kind of sense of perspective as well and one of the things I learned a few years ago when my wife and I walked across uh, Northern England on the coast to coast path is that pretty much if you can see something in the distance, then you can walk to it in a, in that day, which is a nice thing to know when you spend most of your time in a metal box whizzing around at sort of eighty miles an hour. That just by your own uh, sort of yeah. foot power, that's an achievable goal. So I, I like to be out in nature for, for all the kind of reasons that led me to join the the RAF as a survival instructor, but I am. Um, I think being able to just access it and knowing that even if my job, as all of us has, has a degree of indoorsy space, two hours per week is all I really need to do to get that mental benefit to make me happy, then I I just love knowing that. And it means that even like an urban park, if I'm away with work, is a a good place to spend it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Definitely with you on that one. Time in nature, whatever takes your fancy, I think is so rejuvenating and and healing and gives you that perspective perspective as well is so important in everything um so let's get some more musical perspective and pause to listen to another of your brilliant choices this is the beastie boys with sabotage why have you chosen this one
0: this has got loads of connections for me so i won't go i won't do it to death now but back in early days of my flying training so in the late 90s giving away far too much about my age I guess but back in the late 90s when we were learning to fly helicopters my friends and I would watch this normally before we went for a weekend away somewhere like a night out in Leeds that kind of thing And I regret to say it, I was one of those people who would dress like the Beastie Boys just to go to the pub because it was funny for us.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure they'd approve.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And there are other connections, too, but it does take me back to then. It's a brilliant track.
1: Brilliant. Well, let's hand over to the Beastie Boys then. Was yet another seriously kick-ass choice of music from today's guest chief survival instructor to the UK military and author of the brilliant and hugely useful how to survive John Hudson now John I'd like to move on to hope next mm. because I really feel like there's a connection between hope and sense of happiness but I think hope is particularly important to all of us right now as we live in these rather strange and unsettling times Um, but it's also important to the sense and possibility of survival you say in the book lasting hope can only be born out of realistic optimism which seems so true to me do you think that you are naturally hopeful or is it more about a rational logical thought process to you
0: I I genuinely think it's a little bit of both because um you I know that you can tweak your mindset through a kind of repetition of good practices you can steer your brain towards that kind of realistic optimism to go out if you are naturally a sort of a glass half full person you can you can tweak your mindset and nudge yourself towards being more optimistic. You can. And that's not just my um, opinion. That's been been proven by others in the science realm. The bit um, about hope and, uh, and kind of tied in with that is the, the psychological phrase agency, meaning that sort of sense of, of control. The bit I like about it is knowing that it's not just something bad happening to you that can turn off your hope. It's that, it has to also happen with a feeling like you can't control it. And there are always elements of the kind of problems we face these days, which are controllable to us. So knowing that and and knowing that um, that in itself, knowing I can control a small part of a problem enables me to keep my hope candle burning. That allows me to tap into some other deeper reserves I, I feel. And it also is, is um, kind of correlated with some of the psychological research on it because there's a lot of, ancient philosophical stances about um, stoicism, particularly about knowing what you can control and what you can't control and not worrying about the bits you can't control. And I I kind of follow that advice. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm a practicing philosopher by any means. I I just know that if I've been confronted with a large problem and it doesn't have to be wilderness survival, but it does apply there too. If I've been confronted with a large problem, I'll just look for the little things in it that I can certainly change to the, the, you know, to, to my advantage um, to get my job done, and they're the bits I'll chip away at, and then that gives me that sense of progression, which allows me to see the whole problem in, in, in its constituent parts. Because most of these things that we confront, they're not one like um, not one massive issue. They're just lots of little things in combination, and that certainly helped me a lot in the in the current scenario that we're all in. That maintaining hope during lockdown, because it is going to end at some point, and if you don't. If you don't if you we if we all sat back and worried that it would go for years and years and years, no, this will never end, then yeah, it's gonna be a bit of an overwhelming thought. But knowing that it's a day at a time or an hour at a time during the day, picking something that's a little goal for myself at the end of that session. So even something as simple as a nice cup of tea at the end of doing what I'm doing, that all keeps me going and sustains my hope, which allows me to do the next thing. So yeah, it's I would I have been described by others as a kind of a, an inherently hopeful person and, and like an optimist. Uh, but I, I believe that my optimism and my hope is realistic and it's balanced. I don't think it's it's blind optimism. Um, and it's certainly something that I've tried to work out over the years to make sure that it's it, it doesn't slip the other way, which is encouraging, I think, because it proves that we can all push ourselves in that direction if we want to. And why wouldn't you want to? Because it makes you happy.
1: Yeah, totally with you on that. And and you said, uh, you said there that you are not a philosopher, but you do quote a philosopher in the at the beginning of um, your appendix on coping during a pandemic, which Mm. I have to say is, well, it's obviously incredibly pertinent right now, but it's, it's reassuring, and it's practical. And I think a lot of people would get a lot out of it. But um, the quote that you use from Epictetus, which is just perfect for this show, so I had to say it out loud. Good for you. You you mention, um, show me a man who, though sick, is happy, who, though in danger, is happy, who, though in prison, is happy, and I'll show you a Stoic. And I just think that's so inspiring. And and you did mention Stoicism there, but... Mm. um, I think that kind of pragmatic approach and the philosophical approach to this is where we are now. How, do we, how are we going to deal with it? Are we going to yeah. deal with it and make the best of it? Or are we going to be miserable and get mired in it? And um, I just think, yeah, it's a very inspiring approach.
0: Yeah, it's, it's um, I first came across that that quote, which in itself is centuries old. When I was reading about somebody from the, the 60s who was held in isolation, when he was shot down in North Vietnam, and the guy in question is uh, was he's, he's dead now, but it was a U.S. admiral called Jim Stockdale, and he had studied stoicism. So the the quote of Epictetus, he he knew his quotes back to front, inside out, and the, when he was shot down, he um used that philosophy to help him get through captivity and kind of to explain as best I can in the, the you know the, the spoken word how his captivity unfolded. He was held in a horrific prison for seven years and I think it was four years that he was in isolation for and I think two of those four years he was shackled and had a solitary light bulb on in his in his cell so you know deprivation beyond most of our imaginations let alone experiences and he relied on that stoic principle of knowing what you can control and dealing with that versus worrying about the stuff you can't control. So he didn't worry about the things he couldn't control. He just focused on the things he could control. And it helped him to endure those seven years. And importantly, I think, what he also noticed was that the the quite a few prisoners, unfortunately, died in captivity. And the pattern he noticed was that the ones who died were optimists. But the key part was that they were um, unrealistic in their optimism. So they would potentially think something like oh um, i'm going to be released at christmas they're going to release us at christmas you know they're bound to do it there's zero evidence to support that assumption and so when christmas came and went and they hadn't been released it was crushing to their morale and in some cases they would die so he's been uh, referred to as the guy who uh, it's called the stockdale paradox now it's coined by an author in the 80s but it's this sense that Optimism is brilliant, and we should all engender it as much as possible, but it should be realistic optimism. There's no point in being kind of a blind optimist and making up rationales that have got no evidence to support them, because you will be disappointed. And it's better to go through that kind of even steady state than pitch up and down through the peaks and troughs of emotion, because if you're in a really bad situation like they were, it can be fatal, which isn't that well known outside of the kind of survival community that I inhabit. But, you know, if you if you get into a really severe rut, it can be um, can be like a very very severe downward spiral. So yeah, that 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 quote's great, but I I, I confess I came upon it via Jim Stockdale's work that he drafted after he was released um, in the seventies.
1: So interesting and 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 just a great lesson on the difference between naive blind faith or optimism and optimism that's based on some kind of reality, which I think yeah. is, a, is a probably an important lesson for. For all of us, um, I think it's my turn for a track choice now. This is a song from a hugely talented band that I've had the pleasure of working with. Sadly, they're no longer playing together, but they're all still incredibly talented individuals. This is the Greasy Slicks, a British band with Wild Ones. mellow Wild Ones from Greasy Slicks, but with another killer guitar solo right in there. Mm. Um, You are back today with The Happiness Pause on Soho Radio. Now, John, I'd like to ask you on a personal note, we've talked about uh, some of the kind of isolating uh, impacts of the the pandemic that we're living through. Mm. But how has the daily challenge of coping with lockdown affected your daily life have you been able to i mean i imagine that you do loads of traveling normally that's all yeah, been yeah, shut yeah. down then it, it must have had an impact have you been able to kind of find a an easy breezy way through or has it been tough i don't
0: i don't want to make what i've had to do sound tough because the like the real workers have been out there doing their bit and keeping everything going around us um the majority
1: sure the
0: vast, the vast majority of what we do is still best delivered as kind of face-to-face training rather than distance learning. There are elements that we do do via distance, but of course. some of it has to be face-to-face. So understandably, I mean, the vast majority of that has had to be put on hold. So I've done some small socially distanced face-to-face uh, type serials for people who really, really, really need it because they're going to go somewhere dangerous and have to have it. Um, but a lot of what we've been doing is similar to a lot of other people. It's kind of um, stock taking, making sure that all the stuff that supports the things we do when we're out and about is is as accurate and as up to date and as maintained and reviewed as it can be. Um, but the one thing that I I have benefited from, I suppose, if if we're looking at gains and losses, is that my kind of commute to work no longer happens. So I've got at least an hour and a half in the day that I didn't used to have, and I've I've really tried to um, to spend that time well rather than just killing it. Uh, I, I didn't want to end up getting into a kind of a negative pattern of uh, watching mindless telly that I wasn't really interested in so I've, I've tried to be out and about and I've tried to combine doing stuff physically as well as doing stuff on the, on the computer because I'm terrible if I have to sit by a laptop for too long I, de- I get really fidgety so I've tried to get you know exercise by doing practical things outside um, so that you know the small garden we've got here is the tidiest it's ever been. But yeah, I mean it's it's a balance, isn't it? You've got to it's no point complaining because we're not being asked to do something really, really hard. You know, we're just being asked to socially distance, maintain that kind of personal discipline and and respect the NHS and the others. Because by by doing that, we're helping them. So reframing it as that kind of positives helped me, knowing that my inactivity is helping them. Uh, so yeah, it's been similar to a lot of people who are listening to this i guess you're a lot more confined but there are creative opportunities and outlets if you if you look hard enough
1: yeah i certainly i certainly think that and i and what your words about us actually contributing in a proactive way by being more still by mm. keeping up our personal hygiene and sanitation and all of that stuff and yeah. the social distancing has definitely been echoed by NHS workers who I've spoken to who've said I've been you know gushing with praise and thanks for them going into hospitals every day mm. and they've honestly humbly turned around and said to me Oh but you're doing your bit too and I just kind of think uh that's really it makes me feel really uncomfortable but on mass we are doing our bit and yeah. I think your your idea of putting a positive spin on that is is really healthy really healthy
0: Well I try to be positive and So I'm
1: going to reward you <laughs> Go on. No carry on I was going to reward you with a song choice but oh. Oh, come back to me come back to me
0: Okay so the the positive spin I think for that as well is whilst we're inactive and we're contributing there's a it's quite trite i suppose but survival is uh, it's not a solo effort it's a team sport and that's not my quote that's from an astronaut who had to go through uh, survival training so in this case it is about it is there's a little bit of that going on even though we're isolated we're we're, uh, kind of playing the game as a team by doing the right thing so yeah that was all i was going to say i'm sorry please do play an amazing track
1: (laughs) <laughs> well you you can call it amazing because you chose it uh so well Ooh. done to you pat on the back to you um <laughs> so this next one is long flight uh from future islands tell us about this one why do you love this one?
0: Oh, this makes me happy so um i i was listening to it a lot on a long flight a few years ago probably four maybe five years ago i was going to work away for a little bit and it it, it was just the right thing um it's also uh, one of my wife's favorite tracks and bands and we listen to it a lot together but my like similar to the sabotage one i'm a bit of a visual learner emma so i love the video to this and um something that makes me happy whenever i watch watch the video and for anyone who hasn't checked it out yet you you really should because it's it's not often you get to see a load of japanese Elvises dancing in a park but the um the the the, the technology fact <laughs> that we, we're bound to have at some point, if indeed we haven't already had it, um, proves my my kind of ineptitude with anything technological. So I'm not brilliant at anything to do with connectivity. And I proved this by showing my father-in-law the video to this this track on my phone, which I didn't realise was actually being projected onto my mother-in-law's telly in her bedroom at the same time at night. So she was watching Ooh. some kind of... Yeah. <laughs> She was watching some kind of, I don't know what, what Joan was watching, but she ended up watching Future Islands, the video. So, yeah, that makes me happy for many reasons.
1: Oh, that makes everybody happy to just imagine that. This <laughs> is uh, Future Islands with Long Flight. was long flight from future islands another great and inspired track choice from my guest today john hudson author of how to survive on the happiness pause here on soho radio um now we were talking about travel and how that's been a bit stymied by you know the world having other ideas about everybody traveling about recently Hmm. but um obviously given the nature of your job you have traveled the globe do you still enjoy traveling for the pure joy or is it a bit of a schlep these days because of work
0: i like traveling I i don't i don't think anyone really enjoys being sort of cramped in in cattle class for hours and end which is certainly my normal means of travel if i'm going anywhere with work but the just the small journeys that um, we make through through work and, and and like through recreation, I love going to somewhere new to sort of experience some facet even if it's just a different little bit of, of the UK that I've travelled to, to go and explore in the in the camper van, that kind of thing. I love going to see new places. And I, I think there's a there's an argument that I and I know that this this has appeared in, in, in other kind of explorers uh, thoughts about the explorer gene, but I don't think that I think it's, it's something like H5. Uh, anyway, can't remember now. Top of my head, but not having that gene doesn't prevent us from having those experiences. And I, I don't know if I've got the explorer gene or not, but I do like to see new stuff. So, um, travel's obviously a lot limited at the moment. But when we when we ramp it back up with, which is a natural part of the job, because we do have to go to jungles, deserts, and the Arctic. I'll, I'll look forward to going back to it, but it's not so much the travelling. It's like the people that you meet when you get there, isn't it? It's the kind of connections that you make and the things that you learn. I, that's the bit I like about yeah.
1: travel. Yeah, absolutely. Learning and the whole experience is, is just wonderful. I found myself transporting or maybe telepathically travelling recently mm. just to kind of remember some of the places I've been so lucky to, to have visited um, in the last year. Um, But yeah, something that does prevent us from from working when we're not lucky enough to work um, in anything that makes us travel or takes us around the world is being tied to our working routines. So Um, I'm going to be self-indulgent here and run straight into another track choice of mine, which is uh, The Brilliant Jungle with Busy earning. That was Jungle with Busy Earning. I hope it got some of you onto your feet and moving around because that is definitely part of my own sense of happiness. Now, I am joined today by, among many other skills and talents, author John Hudson, who has written the brilliant book uh, How to Survive, and that is now available. So I urge you to go and find yourself a copy. And it's a great Father's Day idea as well. So get buying, please. <laughs> um john we're gonna talk sorry for that blatant plug but you know <laughs> no, like done. <laughs> um john we're gonna talk a bit more about your you owe me some commission though so let's talk about that <laughs> <affair>. um <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna talk a bit more about your um sense of happiness now um tell me you seem like a pretty cheerful bloke to me are you happy by default or do you have to work at it
0: oh i think i think i'm happy by default. Um... But there are certainly times i'm sure everyone must have times where things like feeling happy isn't your default setting, and you have to work at it. but I think if we were happy all the time, you know well you, I, don't, I I pretend that's not even possible you've got to experience all the darker colors to experience the sort of patches of sunlight haven't you so um I uh
1: yeah absolutely. yeah I,
0: I feel like I'm a fairly happy person there's an interesting um stat that I stumbled upon during, a, during my research for the book which is that when you encounter people who naturally aren't that that happy soul you know the sort of um the the always see the glass as kind of I don't know a quarter empty or or like the, they're looking through the telescope the wrong way and they're like the in my world we just know them as mood hoovers, but they really sort of bring the party yeah, down yes. type of people yeah. when you when you meet them, they take four of your happy tokens out of your bucket, and when you meet a really upbeat happy person, they only put two tokens back in and that's not me this is like a, an American university that's made this analysis, so I try my best even if I don't feel um, as upbeat as I might want to, I try my best not to portray that to others because I'm aware of the effect it could have on them. And if they're already having a bit of a, a down day, the last thing they need is me unloading my mental burden on them. So I try not to. And I've certainly done that when I've been doing survival training because sometimes when you're uh, soaked to the skin and really, really covered in crap and you're trying to get a job done, but everything's slipping out of your hands or whatever. Then if that happens, I just take a moment I won't complain to anyone else. I'll just wander off a small distance and have, and let it all out at a tree, you know, just sort of complain to something that isn't going to be affected by yeah. it. That kind of unburdening does help uh, along with a couple of the other hacks that we've already mentioned and some of the others um, that I, I know of, you know, that tends to help. But yeah, I, I think it's unrealistic for any of us to expect to be happy all the time and nor, nor should we really want to, because you end up with that kind of um, normalized expectation, don't you? And we, we do attune to things quite quickly as humans. So, You don't just want to experience a a greater level, I I imagine. So, yeah, I'm I'm fairly optimistic and fairly happy. But, yeah, there are things that I have to employ to maintain that.
1: Yeah, I think everybody, if they were honest with themselves, would probably admit the same. And Mm. do you think in a more reflective mood, do you think if you looked back, at your teenage self, teenage years are sometimes ridden with angst, uh, sometimes plain sailing, sometimes not, but would there be any advice you would give yourself as a teenager to, to make yourself or encourage yourself to have a bit of an easier time and be a bit happier as a teenager? Obviously I have no idea if you're a happy teenager, but (laughs) do you think you've kind of matured into that sense of like yourself as you've, as as you've got um, into your adulthood?
0: Yeah. And I wouldn't listen to any advice someone as old as me gave me when I was a teenager. So it's like, even if I time traveled back, and would be like, Who are you Very
1: with? good point.
0: <laughs> but if I could somehow insert yeah. <laughs> a into my teenage head, which would automatically be rejected because when you're a teenager, you reject this information, it would be to care less what other people thought about me, you know, not necessarily vested opinions. Yeah. And stuff like but if I could, if I could do that to any teenager, if I could, encourage them to not care as much about what the peer group or the others in their little um i don't know cohort at school for example thought that would probably help everyone out because you do sort of chase um acceptance a little bit which is natural because you know belongings are really important tier of uh, the kind of hierarchy of our needs and especially when you're a teenager but if i could if i could make myself care less what other people thought when i was a teenager that would probably have increased my happiness yeah
1: yeah good point and a uh, nice mention of the sense of belonging because I did pick up pick that up in how to survive so yeah, very important. Um, time for a music breather again this this time is one of your choices. Um, this is a track I listen to a lot. I'm not gonna lie. It is a piece of musical awesomeness. This one <laughs> is Led Zeppelin with immigrant song how why how I mean you don't really need an excuse it's just brilliant. Yes, agreed. Well, it's just brilliant. Every time you hear it, there is no denying it. That is yeah. Led Zeppelin with "Immigrant Song," uh, beautifully remastered as well, not that many years ago, I believe. Um, and yeah, that was another fantastic song choice from my guest today, John Hudson. Now, John, you as we talked about just now, you have travelled all over the world in all sorts of climates and environments. Is location important to you in? feeling happy
0: i think it's um it's gonna definitely affect my mood where we are but because like you say i'm really lucky with my day job and I, I do get to go to some pretty cool places it's very very hard not to feel happy because you mostly because of the the gratitude for the opportunities i, I suppose it's which I, I i suppose is is distinct from happiness but that feeling of gratitude is uh, important to me because you should uh, I believe that we should never take those sorts of things for granted because you never know when they're going to stop. and I mean, that's been proven for most of us recently, hasn't it? You know, you've got that kind of... We've all endured a little bit of hardship recently and whatever personal challenges we face during this like pandemic lockdown, its it's going to have stretched our coping mechanism a little bit. So being grateful for the opportunities to travel and therefore not taking it for granted... I think that appreciation, that taking a moment to appreciate the things that we've got. I'm really lucky that I get to travel with work, but even the little things that we get to do day to day, I reckon we're all going to savour that first pint back in a pub or whatever the equivalent is for that, for you personally. We're all going to savour that and it will taste better than the ones we yeah. took for granted before. So it's a little bit of that really, Emma. I just I try not to take things for granted.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of... Uh feeling grateful gratitude I think it's so right. important because then you stop to be grateful or express gratitude even if it's to yourself like I'm really grateful for my brain or my yeah. sense of humor or whatever it is that's got yeah. you through a difficult moment I think it, it just reminds you that you can get through anything yeah. um, well, what about uh, I just mentioned climate in, in, in terms mm. of um, you traveling all over the place is mm. there a particular type of climate that you feel sort of at home and comfortable with, or are you are you happy in any old weather?
0: I'm. I don't know. I'm. I'm quite lucky that um, even if it's sort of horizontal rain, cold, wet, miserable British summer, liquid sunshine, it, it doesn't really make me like regret. I'm not indoors. I just like being outside. I, I think of all the kind of uh, more extreme places that I've been lucky enough to go there's a couple that I do feel at home at and it's a toss up really, but it's either the sort of tropical rainforest environment or the extreme cold environment of high Arctic. Um, But I suppose it's, it may be that, that, I mean, that could just be because at certain times of year, we tend to go to certain places. So the high Arctic, when I was working with the Canadians up there, it was really, really cold. It was uncomfortably cold. You know, it's minus 64 Celsius. Things that, things that you take for granted, like, um, Without being too base, but just going to the toilet is a potentially life-altering experience when it's that cold. So you've got to you've got to yeah. make sure <laughs> you've got to make sure you kind of you you, you know what you're doing uh, without you know painting too gory a picture. So I I, I enjoy it, and it, like we spoke about a moment ago, Emma, it's not necessarily the extremes of climate that are in themselves such an an enjoyable experience. It's the the opportunities that being there presents. So. Working with um, kind of older Inuit people and, and learning how they endure that, and like you know, walking around behind the older Inuit guides and being taught how to find the right snow to build your igloo, things like that. I love that sort of stuff. But were I to be dropped off there with without the right equipment, no, I wouldn't like it, and it, it would probably not take too long until any anyone other than an Inuit succumbed to it. Someone who was absolutely habituated to it. So I like the the extreme cold because it's it's really, it, it feels crisp and clean. And equally, I, I do like the tropical rainforest because life is so abundant. It's the opposite, you know, it's damp and wet and everything rots and gets mold on it. And if you get a cut or a scratch, you have to attend to it or it will get infected. But it's such a thriving place for other life. And knowing that I've been lucky enough to travel to several kind of jungles and see them, when especially when, you know, we're more at risk of destroying jungles than jungles are of, of destroying us, you know, it it's it's nice to have been able to be lucky enough to experience those places and again to work with the first nations peoples who who live in them to learn what they know and how to live in harmony with those sorts of environments that's the bit i like
1: yeah and honestly john you paint such vivid pictures of all these places this is why you're a great writer because we are you, every every other word we're transported one minute we're in the rainforest the next we're in the arctic it's 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 quite um it's quite dramatic, I have to say. I'm all over the place here listening to you. It's, it's great. Um, so I, I need a I need a bit of a pause to uh, to listen to a bit more music. This is going to be... We've heard one, one set of legends with... Well, we've heard so many legends today, but we're going to move straight into another one, which uh, set of British le- legends. Um, this is the Rolling Stones. And this, I suppose, very appropriately for what we're talking about, is Gimme Shelter. Excellent. disappear into some hedonistic fantasy world, which that last track, Gimme Shelter by the Stones, does have a little tendency to make me do. Uh, I'm going to pull myself back into the room, uh, back to our guest, John Hudson. And John, I think we're going to go straight into your final track choice of the day. I can't believe we are are there already, but we are. Um, Before I ask you one final, rather tricky question... I have okay. to warn you. Um, mm-hmm. now this is a great, this is a great choice. You've you've chosen uh the Stone Roses with Fool's Gold. Can you can you give us any stories behind this one?
0: Oh, there's a Yeah, so it's my favorite track ever, probably. And it I've known it throughout my sort of wow. adolescence and up to now, I've loved it all the way through. I can even remember that if you go into the Eldon pub near Leeds Art College where I studied and typed in one one three one zero as your 50p went down this would come on before you'd chosen your next two tracks and that's old oh. knowledge because not many pubs still have those in them um, but there's um there's a really really good friend of mine who was very very badly injured in a helicopter crash not that long ago he's, he's on a very very long road to recovery and hopefully you know we'll we'll get him back eventually but me and my bezzy mucker went to watch the roses when they reformed in 2012 at heaton park and the version of this that they played at that gig is just blinding. So whichever version you've got doesn't matter. But it's been a, a kind of a, a, a track that's made me feel happy my entire adult life. Love it.
1: Oh, I love that. I love that reasoning. Um, So sadly, we're not going to listen to the Healy Park version because it's over 13 minutes long. Uh, (laughs) But I would urge people to check it out on YouTube. (laughs) Do check it out on YouTube, people, because it is definitely worth seeing. There's nothing quite like seeing a band play a festival. And my God, could the Stone Roses play a festival. So this is Fool's Gold. I can just imagine so many people listening to this, nodding their heads in that kind yeah. of arrogant way as they listen to the beat of the good old stone roses and um, thinking they're cooler than they are, which often happens to me, so I can relate. <laughs> so that was a classic festival track. That was the stone roses with fool's gold. The final choice of my brilliant and inspiring guest today, John Hudson, author of How to Survive. Um, now John sadly we are nearly at the end of today's show it's gone quickly because you've been such a brilliant guest Um, you mentioned something poignant about accessing happiness in the book you suggest that when dealing with the unexpected and when we're under pressure we focus on the things that keep us motivated help us achieve and ultimately make us happy So I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you, can you give us your three essential ingredients for happiness?
0: Oh, that's a really good question. So one of the the most important things to make sure that we do feel happy is to have enough time. So not to rush and I'm trying to put that into a suitable context, but I hope you get the gist of what I'm saying. It's like, if, you, if you're if you doing something that's potentially going to make you feel happy, then don't rush it, you know, enjoy it. And then you've touched upon this quite a few times. The place has to be the right place um, because, I, you know, my work environment takes me to some very, very odd places from time to time. And some of them inevitably uh, suck the happiness out of you. Whereas others can't help but make you feel upbeat so having enough time in the right place and then the last one's super duper obvious I'm sure for most of us it's just to make sure that you're sharing that with the right people because I don't I don't think it's I don't think it's impossible to be happy on your own I don't at all I'm not suggesting that because I'm a little bit of an introvert myself but I think a shared happiness is greater than the sum of its parts and especially if you've got some kind of connection that you can then draw back upon with those people or that person that you can tap into in the future, it becomes like a, a little reservoir of happy in your brain that you can take a drink from every now and then if you do feel like you're in the wrong place with the wrong people. So those would be my three ingredients. And if I was allowed a fourth, it would be beer.
1: Oh, yeah. You can have a you You've got your people with you. You can have a beer. You're definitely allowed that. Yeah. No, nice well, choice. Nice nice choice very, very nice choices. Well, John Hudson, thank you so much for joining me on the Happiness Pause today. It's been enlightening, honestly, and oh, we can you, all Anna. learn some important lessons from your book, How to Survive.
0: Thank you very much. It's been an absolute
1: um, pleasure. So, oh, I'm so, I'm so pleased you've enjoyed it. Um, I want to also thank everyone for listening. As always, one thing we've touched on today is the importance of hope. It's not just important at strange times like the one we're living through right now, surrounded by maybe fear, not only through the presence of the pandemic, but constant reminders of our imperfect society where fear still allows racism to flourish. Hope is eternally important, whatever our circumstances, it will be the one thing that keeps us going, encourages us to look ahead and not backwards, believe in ourselves, and those around us and the world beyond. As Desmond Tutu said, hope is being able to see that there is light despite all of the darkness. I leave you today with a real motivator of a song. The energy in this one says you can and you definitely will, so never give up hope. I've been Emma Bartholomew with The Happiness Pause on Soho Radio, and this is Kasabian with Clubfoot.